Welcome to Community Pulse from Environmental Design Group, highlighting the transformations happening in our communities and celebrating the leaders making them happen. Tammy Naguki, her EDG co-host, and their special guest reveal insights that are driving our communities forward, right now on Community Pulse. Welcome everyone to the EDG Community Pulse podcast. My name is Tammy Naguki and I'm with Environmental Design Group. I'm joined today by my co-host, Jason Sanson, also from Environmental Design Group. And our guest today is Louis Capobianco from the Remington Road Group. Welcome, Louis. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure uh, to be involved today. Perfect. We, we're happy to have you. I uh, Just a little bit of background on Louis. He brings over 15 years of experience in government and political uh, experience in Ohio. Capobianco has been coordinating, I love saying your last name, by the way, successful <laughs> political strategies in Ohio for years at all levels from municipal, county, legislative to statewide efforts. Prior to joining the Remington Road Group, Lewis served as the director of legislative affairs to former governor Ted Strickland. In this role, Lewis advised the governor on all matters pending before the General Assembly, oversaw the negotiations with legislative leaders on legislation such as the state's operating budget. Uh, Lewis's work helped lead to Ohio being the only state in the nation to pass a two-year tuition freeze for Ohio's college students and expand access to health care to all children in Ohio. Lewis has played senior roles for numerous candidates, organizations, and issue campaigns. He has worked and advised on campaigns for city council, mayor, county commissioner, state senate, state house, Supreme Court governor, and U.S. Senate. Additionally, Lewis has worked with allied groups like America, America Votes, Planned Parenthood, and Issue 2 to repeal SB 5. Lewis also served as political director for the 2010 Coordinated Campaign in Ohio. He lives in Shawnee Hills, Ohio, with his wife, Missy, and their three children, Maggie, Joseph, and Lily. Welcome, Lewis. Good to have you. Thanks for having me. That was great. It was um, almost a verbatim reading of my bio. Thanks for doing it. Hey, anytime. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, we're happy to have you on this podcast today. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about this earlier um, you know, I've known Lewis for about five years now, and the majority of the time that we've spent together, you know, is mainly hunting for golf balls. So, uh, but during those golf ball huntings, uh, he shared, you know, some of his professional experience and background, and uh, I knew that he'd be a good, you know, a great person to have on this podcast. So, definitely excited to have him here. Like golf ball hunting, was that because you were needing a few extra in your bag or because you were chasing some strays? Uh, mainly chasing strays, but, you know, <laughs> just because we got bored, you know, if we hit it down the, if we did happen to be fortunate enough to hit it down the fairway, then we needed extra time for other people to find their golf balls. So. <laughs> right, right. You can't always, can't always blame the others in the foursome. Uh, it's a uh, curse of my golf game as well. Balls ball can be somewhat allergic to the fairway. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, so, Lewis, we're interested in learning all about your professional career. Um, talk a little bit about, uh, start maybe with your internships and, you know, which was your favorite and why, and where did this all get started for you? Sure. Well, um, I grew up, um, I mean, I'm, I'm an Ohioan now and, you know, have been, have lived here for, I think I've lived here longer than any place in my life, but um, I grew up in uh, Massachusetts. I grew up in a small town about 20 minutes north of uh, north of Boston uh, and over Massachusetts and so my 
my extended family um, was all over David, Massachusetts, not, um, you know, be it Somerville, Massachusetts, or um, South Boston, things like that. And, um, part of my family, um, obviously Capo Bianco, my dad's side, uh, Italian side, but my mom's Irish, Irish side, was in South Boston, uh, very politically active. And my great uncle um, helped elect many, many years ago a guy by the name of Joe Mokley um, to the U.S. Congress um, representing South Boston. And Mokley served for, I want to say, 16 or 17 terms. And I got introduced uh, and acclimated to politics through that port- to that side of my family. Uh, my uncle, my great uncle was a longshoreman um, and helped organize the Longshoremen's Union um, in South Boston at that time. Uh, and so that's how I sort of became generally aware of politics. You know, my, neither of my parents were politically active, but politically, uh, they were they were voters. They were aware of what was going on, um, uh, but not not political people or, or government people. Um, but we we never sh- shied away from those conversations um, around the dinner table um, or you know watch the news and, and have those kinds of sort of dialogue amongst us. Yeah, the different generations. I, I've remember back when I was a child, I, nobody talked about politics in our family. I think we all knew that everybody voted and was very aware of what the issues were, but nobody would ever tell anybody, you know, which way they were leaning or anything. So I think that's interesting that you had that relationship with your parents. That's pretty cool. Yeah. My wife um, has a story more similar to you. Um, she grew up in a house where they didn't talk about it. Um, and you didn't ask right. uh, what people voted for. And that wasn't, that was, you know, that was impolite maybe. Um, and I have a, it's a, very, it's a very opposite experience for me. And then, when I went to college, um, I studied political science and did um, multiple uh, campaign internships, and I interned on Capitol Hill the summer between my junior and senior year of college. And uh, then uh, after that, I you know did some obviously you know campaign interning uh, and um, you know, direct office interning during college, and then um, came came back through Ohio uh, expecting to go to. Uh, grad school or law school, and got connected um, to a job, and uh, the rest is history, as they said, and uh, never left. Lewis, when you're talking about um, you know those early those early moments when you were you know interested in politics, what were some of those early issues that inspired you? Can you recall back then? You know, what were those things that were like? Yeah, you know what, I need to be involved in that. You know, what was interesting was uh, Mike Dukakis was the Democratic nominee for governor, I'm sorry, the Democratic nominee for president in 1988. He was the governor of Massachusetts um, at the time. And I was 10 years, 9, 10 years old, (laughs) uh, 11 years old, somewhere in there. Um, And I was fascinated that um, this guy uh, was, running for president and, you know, with Democratic nominee. And it was, you know, it was a constant point of conversation, um, at least in Massachusetts um, or in many places. And so that sort of piqued my interest. Um, and uh, I, my dad let me vote. My dad took me into the voting booth back when you could pull big mm-hmm. levers back then. I remember, <laughs> I remember vividly voting for Dukakis. I think the only state he won was Massachusetts in that election. Um, and, uh, I remember sort of that experience. Um, I, I couldn't tell you that I identify, I can identify an issue specific, yeah. um, but I, re- I remember being 
sort of enlightened to the experience of politics vividly and uh, through that campaign. Interesting. Thank you. So you, you mentioned some of the internships, or the, you mentioned the internship on Capitol Hill. You know, can you give us a little peek of what you experienced sure. in that internship? Yeah. So I, I tell people this. Um, it was interesting, right? Like I obviously was, um, you know, you do a lot of phone answering, mail, and you know, looking at mail. Um, you know, maybe you get lucky and you catch on to an issue that you get to pay attention to for three months or four months and, you know, write it out. Uh, one of the things they do, they, they run some interesting programs for interns, which are great. They expose you to different people. I think the two most interesting things for me that occurred on the Hill was I got to meet um, and speak with um, Congressman John Lewis for a extended period of time. Uh, and for, you know, 20, 21 year old me, whatever I was that, I mean, he was somebody who, you know, I had been reading extensively about, especially in college or civil rights issues and, you know, contemporary American political history. Um, and that was, you know, a moment that I still reflect on is, you know, special. It's so unique. And I, you know, mm-hmm. I wish that more people would have a chance to stop, you know, talk to somebody like John Lewis. Um, but secondly, oddly enough, um, uh, Ralph Nader uh, spoke for some reason was selected to be a, a to speak to this group of interns, and it was a bipartisan group of interns. And Nader obviously, you know, doesn't you know identifies as an independent. Um, he looked around the room, and I, I, you know, and he had the same crumpled suit that he's probably worn for thirty years. And I can remember this uh, very intimately. He, he said, "You know, most of you, if not all of you, are here because of your know-who, not your know-how." Um, don't waste it. It's not entirely fair, uh, but don't waste the opportunity you've been given. And um, I thought that was a little harsh. I think there were a lot of people there. It wasn't because of their know-who. Uh, <laughs> many, though, it was. But yeah. it, it struck me, though, as something um, that I necessarily hadn't been aware of, which was you're, you're in, a, in, in a position, whether, you've, whether you got there because of a phone call from someone else or because of luck or because of the hard work that you've uh, put in, um, you're in a position a lot better than most, and you better not uh, waste it. So I think those are sort of two indelible moments over the course of that uh, four or five months that stuck with me. I like that. So with all the stuff that's currently going on, Lewis, you know, whether it be the pandemic or um, you know the economic issues, uh, social issues, and so forth, uh, when you were at the governor's office, when you work with Governor Strickland, um, you know, what would your role look like in, in 2020? Yeah. Um, when the pandemic started, I, I talked to some of my Republican colleagues and friends, um, and just reached out to offer a, you know, an, an, an ear, uh, or any, any, any help I could give, um, you know, having lived through the great recession and the, sort of economic collapse that occurred in you know, 08, 9, 10, um, you, you realize that even though you're um, in the governor's office and you are working at you know, a very high level of, of, of executive state policy and, and, and politics, um, when something so massive happens, you realize that the tools at your disposal uh, aren't aren't often enough. You can 
do everything you can, but there are forces bigger than you at play. Um, and I think that's a lot of what the DeWine administration is doing, but there are things that you, you, you must succeed at and have to work at, but, you know, the, the DeWine, Ted Strickland didn't ask for, you know, Wall Street to uh, over hedge on subprime mortgage loans and therefore um, have a significant economic decline. And Mike DeWine didn't ask for a global pandemic, um, but they will, you know, they, they bear the consequences, good, bad, or indifferent for what happened. Um, if I was, if I was currently in, in my former role, it, it's a lot of um, interaction with the state agencies and what they're dealing with uh, at any given time. Also their interactions with the general assembly on issues of importance. So, you know, it, some of it may be, you know, at the crisis of the day, um, but often a lot of it is hyper-localized individual legislators on pet issues they care about and then trying to figure out, you know, working with them individually as legislators and with the departments and how, how many of these things align with the governor's priorities and how many of them, if any of them, fit into things that the governor can support uh, and how to juxtapose that with, um, the conversations around um, legislation that's moving um, and, and, and sort of the, you know, the, the chessboard, if you will, of, you know, how do you, how do you then work with the legislature on passing priorities and meshing different pieces together, um, you know, and getting everybody on the same page. It's, it's, uh, it was, it, it was a, it was a great job. Uh, a lot of fun. It was not, you know, it was never nine to five. Um, uh, and it was always interesting. Every single day was something different. Would it be a lot of, you know, again, talking about the unexpectancies, right? Whether it be the economic downturn or the pandemic, would you anticipate or would you think that there'd be a lot of, in a sense, juggling or shifting of whether it be, uh, finances or, or policies, you know, like you said, it, it might there might be a, a fire drill that you have to have on one day, but in the long term, you got to be also preparing for future. So, just kind of curious of what that might look like. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the the, the one thing that you all, that I always reminded myself about I I, I have a you know, I have a I shouldn't say a fiscal background, but I, I was a budget director um, for a Democratic caucus at one point, so I was reminded myself that like, you know, state government is very different than the federal government um, in that you know, the federal government, as we all know, and are reminded about daily at this point, can spend their way, you know, good, bad, you know, for better or worse out of, out of a problem or into a problem for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, state government doesn't have that luxury, right? State government has to maintain a balanced budget. Um, and when you enter a crisis, an economic crisis, a fiscal crisis, um, the pain points get very real uh, because most of uh, most of state government resources largely re- exist in some massive areas of spending, and they are uh, healthcare, so Medicaid, um, they are K through 12 funding for education and the prison system, and those take up an exponential amount of the budget, close to I'd say like three quarters, 75 percent of state budget. You have a, you know, a lot of federal revenue pass-through money. Um, so when you get down to it, 
when you start to have to make really hard decisions, you are cutting into um, legitimate priorities and safety net uh, matters that affect a lot of people. And you start to become keenly aware of the consequences um, of your actions to the impact of people's lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something that um, is, you know, is profound and that, you know, it's good to remind yourself of when you're in those positions. And regardless of party, I know that everybody's in those positions thinks through those consequences um, while you're having to make very difficult uh, fiscal decisions. That's an interesting um, item to note that, you know, the, the budget for the state is obviously um, – something that ties your hands or ties our, all of our politicians' hands. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the political climate in the state of Ohio. You know, you've been involved for 15, over 15 years now. Um, what are some of those things that, you know, that you see coming in, in the next few years? What are those initiatives and, and why are they important? Sure. I think um, I think what's fascinating about Ohio is it's a state that um, up until the last election, I think, had voted for every 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 victorious presidential candidate for the last 70, 60 years, mm-hmm. maybe 70 years, uh, until 2020. I think it's a state that voted for uh, President Obama twice and voted for President uh, Trump twice. Yeah. Um, so we have a we have a unique electorate. Um, and I, I think I think what, what what's being sussed out um, currently is with the migration of this electorate and the changing uh, demographics in the state, is is Ohio um, is Ohio trended uh, reliably Republican, or is this a phenomena um, that's occurring and that sort of will impact, I think, things that that um, coming uh, politically. I, I I tend to think that this next election cycle, the next two election cycles, are sort of hyper key for. Ohio as a swing state, uh, quote unquote, I think, um, is the is the new you know, air, air quotes the new Trump voter um, a reliable Republican voter, meaning if he's not in the White House or not on the ballot, are they as engaged? Mm-hmm. Um, and what's the Democratic Party doing um, to engage them, engage those same people that have migrated away, as well as hold on to this new voter, which the Democratic Party has done. If you look at, for example where I live, in southern Delaware County, northern Franklin County, uh, you know, you have now the population base, obviously, you still have an incredibly strong Democratic power base in Northeast Ohio, but the growing Democratic Party is overwhelmingly in Franklin County, uh, in southern Delaware, where you have high level of college attainment, high level of, or a higher level of annualized income than the state average, uh, yet these voters are reliably voting Democratic both on local and national races. So, you know, who's, who's going to win this fight going forward over the, the broader, uh, the broader populace and maintain the bigger reliable voting camp, I think will dictate a lot of what, um, what happens uh, politically with, you know, the future of Governor DeWine, um, the reelection um, for uh, Senator Brown and the, the, the open, um, the open Senate seat um, due to Senator Portman. Mm-hmm. Uh, retirement uh, for for uh, next year, uh, but you know, as far as issues go, I think you know, I think you're going to see a lot of conversation, especially post pandemic, around um, early childhood education. I think you have a lot of mayors across 
the state doing a lot locally as it relates to trying to secure funding for children, you know, three, four, and five right. to have access to the slots. I think you'll see a conversation like that at the state level. Um, I think you're going to continue to see conversations around the minimum wage um, uh, increases, even though we have a constitutional amendment in that regard. Um, and I think you'll, you know, you'll, you'll find, a, I think there will be a growing conversation around redistricting, even though we've had a recent constitutional amendment in regards to that, but how, how our congressional state house districts are drawn. Right. Um, I think all of those things are sort of ripe, uh, ripe um, in the both near and long term uh, across the state. And do different parts of the state um, approach this differently, Lewis? Are, you know, what are you seeing? Are there trends there? You know, Columbus has, you know, got its own demographics, but then looking at um, Toledo, Cleveland versus um, Cincinnati, what are those political climates in comparison? Well, yeah, I think Cleveland's at a relatively amazing, I, I think, political moment. Um, uh, whether Mayor Jackson runs again, mm-hmm. um, I think for a fifth term, I think it would be, or um, whether you have a young man like um, Justin Bibb, who's announced his candidacy, who's a political newcomer, who's a 30-something uh, entrepreneur, um, who's talking about the, uh, uh, you know, I believe he's talking about things like you know, what we can do and not what we can't do, right? Like that kind of vision. Or you have, you, know, you have, you have um, I think, you know, the council president, Kevin Kelly, could get it. Um, so that kind of race, or you may have like a state senator like Sandra Things. So you have the potential for a transition um, in, in the mayor's office, um, which would be something, and I say that's interesting because that could potentially align with what's definitely going to happen, which is a transition congressionally once Congresswoman Fudge is confirmed for HUD in mm-hmm. um, the special election to take her seat. Uh, so I think, you know, whether that's the county commissioner, Chantel Brown, or the um, former state senator in the term. Uh, I think Cleveland has, is at this sort of really interesting uh, moment of the potential to elect uh, two new folks in very substantial positions um, and potentially, you know, work together for a very good interest and some growth and opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I think I think what you're seeing in, in a lot of other cities um, is you're seeing a class of younger uh, mayors who are ambitious, not necessarily politically ambitious, obviously some would be, but, but ambitious about getting things done for their cities, whether that's Nan Whaley in Dayton, uh, Mayor Andrew Ginther in Columbus, Mayor Wade Kapsikiewicz, in uh, Toledo, um, Mayor Horgan in Akron, uh, and I think uh, if I said uh, Cranley in Cincinnati, um, these are all folks who are really about pushing their cities to do more and being inventive and trying to be creative. Uh, but you know, you can't always turn the bureaucracy to do everything you want. It's, you know, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes not. But they are not they aren't shy about being promoters um, of their city, uh, of their cities, I should say. Mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of unity. And, and they've developed, at least from my perspective, a good rapport with one another to share ideas. 
um, which I think only benefits uh, cities when, when you know, folks can say what, what isn't, isn't working across the state and they can have a trust quotient with each other to, to communicate. Would you say that those mayors that you just mentioned, um, of our, mostly of our major cities, are, are they more aligned in their issues and their thoughts and ideas going forward? You know, I, I think it depends. I, I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, what's great about mayors, the good ones, and I, I count all those folks as good mayors, is they know that you know, being a mayor is service delivery and, you know, uh, people's interaction with government is, is their trash picked up? Are their roads plowed? You know, those kinds of things. And and then how do they promote their city? How do they help create environments that are successful places where people can live, work, and raise a family? And I think they're aligned generally on that. Uh, I think they probably have different visions on how they get there um, for their, you know, unique circumstances for each of their municipalities. Um, but I think they all appreciate the uh, responsibility of the executive and the role they can play in sort of improving and, and, and shaping uh, the opportunities and development that happen within their, uh, within their cities. Got it. As we're talking about, you know, some of those issues and um, strategies and things like that, what were some of those um, notable political or organizational strategies that you've worked through? Um, maybe some highlights um, and something maybe that you might have done differently. Well, um, I think one of the one of the best campaigns I ever worked on was also one um, that we lost, uh, but it was full of lessons. Was Governor Strickland's re-election campaign in 2010? Um, it was. It, you know, I've never worked for a better person um, than Governor Strickland uh, as a human being, and um, he was, or, in my opinion, a very good governor put into a very, very difficult position. Um, but, it, you know, losing that race by, gosh, I think it was like 77,000 votes and going through that experience, um, hindsight being 2020, um, I don't know that much could have been done uh, differently other than, you know, recognizing the, uh, the, 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 the amount of anger uh, and frustration people felt and that they needed something, they, they were going to find somebody to take it out on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like, and, 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 you know, it's the responsibility of the governor to, to answer that call, whether it's, whether it's their fault or not. Um, that's irrelevant really, you know, and, you know, I think, I think the case was made uh, successfully that, um, uh, to, the governor deserved a, another term, um, but the voters didn't agree, you know, by the tune of about almost 2%. And I think, you know, how you do it, how you do it all over again, knowing the race was that close, um, you probably tinker a little bit with um, some of the conversations earlier on um, around, you know, direct voter conversation and positioning um, in regards to the, the economic collapse. Uh, but then, you know, living through Senate Bill 5, which was collective bargaining reform, um, you know, a year later, um, 2011, was very enlightening as well because what, what you saw very early on in the data, which bared out um, at the ballot box um, later that year, was that um, people felt like 
something was being taken away from them. Uh, and they didn't want some, and they also didn't want something to be taken away from their neighbors who they viewed as their first responders, their protectors. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was illuminating as well, um, in that regard, uh, because there was, there is some, there is obviously a level of community as it relates to those shared feelings of taking, if you will, uh, and how people responded, um, affirmatively to protecting those sort of rights. Interesting. What would you have done differently then? Well, in that race, I don't think, you know, I think winning 65, 35, I think was the margin. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there, I don't think, I don't think there was something to do differently on that one. I think um, I, having left 2010, I think I had probably had a level of negativity yeah. um, that wasn't entirely justified from the loss and was probably overthinking uh, potentially some things. And 2011 kind of recentered me a little bit to realize that, you know, um, you got to meet people where they are right. uh, all the time. Um, and uh, the sooner you do that, the better. Uh, and that was it's sort of something I try to remind myself of all the time. Um, you don't always know better, and most of the time you don't. And you should you got to listen to people um, because they're going to tell you how they feel, and, and you know, meet you know, meet them where they are because that's that's where they're going to that's where they're going to uh, find you and where they're going to be supportive of you. Switching gears a little bit here, Lewis, uh, tell us about the Remington Road Group. What do you guys do and where are you at today and where do you think, where do you plan to be later on down the road here? Sure. Yeah. We're a public affairs, uh, public relations firm based out of Columbus, although for the better part of a year or more than a year now, I guess we've been all working uh, from our homes mostly. Mm. But um, we're a firm of, uh, what are we now? Eight people. Um, and we work extensively on, public affairs issues. So we do uh, a decent amount of local lobbying and state house lobbying for clients of all, all kinds, be it technology, agricultural, environment, healthcare, uh, things of that nature. Um, we do communications consulting. Um, we, we still do maintain uh, a campaign's practice. Um, we, try and, we try and migrate away um, from the direct uh, electioneering as we've all gotten older and uh, had families and I'm trying to migrate off of direct election uh, electoral cycles and more into being small business owners. Um, But we still do that uh, by the nature of our relationships. Um, We've been, um, we've been in business. I I joined about six years ago that the firm has been in existence for about 10 years. Um, And, you know, I think for us, uh, we've, I think grown year over year, uh, every year since establishment. And, you know, it's just about, for us, it's, a, it's about finding good clients that you want to represent and want to work with, uh, that you believe in. Uh, we want them to and then make sure they believe in us. And then going out and effectively trying to help them tell their story and help them achieve um, whatever the measure of success is that they want to achieve. Um, you know, and, and that's the key there is being, you know, keeping in line of communication open and, and just trying to be able to utilize experience to um, you know, help them get uh, where they need to be. Do you have, with the eight individuals that you have at the firm, do you have it split up to where, you know, certain individuals stay focused on political and then some stay on the, you know, business side of, of 
the world or how do you guys how are you guys organized and how do you how do you serve your clients yeah i, I think we try and um you try and maintain um we try, we try not to be siloed uh, because i think we tend to serve each other well and when, when we can cross pollinate and communicate and interact with one another but obviously people have different areas of expertise and so some folks will have areas where you know focused on agriculture and environmental issues and and that'll be so they're you know, a, a bit uh, a silo that they obviously dig into and have a lot of extensive relationships and and somebody may be heavily invested in you know emerging technology issues you know, be they autonomous vehicles or you know, whatever whatever things they may be engaged in that sector and then you know get be able to engage in other aspects um, like that um so we, we try not to silo each other off um, because there tend to be able there tend to be ways to work with each other that benefit the client even when you're not the primary on a on a project typically every client has a primary or two depending on the size of the client and the need and then other folks can hop in as um as necessary with sort of their relationships you know, one, one of the things we always say is uh, as a firm our our reach is statewide so you may you may have an even Columbus, but you also may have one in Toledo and Cincinnati and Dayton. And if I don't have the best relationship someplace, one of my business partners does, and we'll make sure that we utilize that to um, help help generate a conversation um, in that locality or, or on that topic with whoever makes the most sense wherever in the state. So when we, as an engineering firm pursue a client or a client contacts us, we in a sense go through a, like an evaluation process and qualify to see if we're in alignment with them and vice versa. And my mind goes to the history or your experience in politics. Have you ever, how do you, how do you go through the process of, you know, qualifying your, your clients and, have you ever found yourself in a position where it, you know, the client that you're talking to uh, conflicts with what your beliefs are and, and how do you, how do you respond to that? Yeah. I think, well, the first thing we always do is um, if we're pursuing a client or if the client's pursuing us is do a conflict check within the firm to make sure we're not in conflict and we have a competing interest with another client and something like that so that we're not you know violating our, existing agreements um luckily i've never i've not been in a position where i've um been uh had to um walk away from a client because um i felt like they were difficult or that they were um asking for things that were inappropriate um, that's not been my my experience but i do think we have a standard where you know like with any business i, I imagine um jason would be your reputation is sort of what you have as a legacy component about who you are and, and your relationships and your integrity. And, um, you know, as a group of individuals, we're, we're, we're business partners, but we're also friends. Um, and I, we all share that similar sort of credo that, you know, at the end of the day, our, rep, rep, our reputations and integrity supersede um, the, the, the professional uh, engagement of a, of a client contract. So, you know, we're not going to chase something that we're not comfortable with or, or, or aren't, don't think it's been successful or doesn't, 
mesh with what we want to achieve as a group of people. Um, we're not going to compromise sort of our integrity to, uh, you know, for, for another contract or, or something like that. Lewis, how can our listeners find out more about uh, your work with the Remington Road Group and maybe reach out to you if they have further questions? Sure. Um, you know, we have a from, we have a website from the Road Group. Um, lists all of us. Um, uh, you can Google us. Remington, like Remington Steel Road, like the road you drive on. Uh, group, um, and you can. You know, uh, my name is fairly unique enough that if you Googled my name, it would pop up too. Uh, but our, our web presence is um, pretty, pretty uh, readily available, um, and you can find us and get a hold of us uh, directly uh, over the web. Pretty, pretty handily. Great. Thank you for sharing that, and thank you for joining us today. This was really a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Well, I yeah, I appreciate it. I think it was wonderful. I, I uh, feel like I might have talked too much, um, but it was, um, I've not been accused of being shy before, so it wasn't uncomfortable. Um, but I, I really appreciate the time to uh, talk to you guys. It was, it was really enjoyable for me as well. Absolutely. We'd probably love to do this again. That'd be great. Yeah. Thank you very much, Lewis. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.